This is After School on Core 77. I'm Don Lehman. Our guest is one of the most influential industrial designers working today, Robert Bruner. He's the founder of Ammunition, a design consultancy based in San Francisco. Ammunition's work includes developing the Beats by Dre line of headphones and speakers with Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. They have a new product out called Studio, which is a complete redesign of the very first set of headphones they used to launch the company. We talk about that work, as well as Robert's thoughts on starting Ammunition, which is the fourth design studio he has created. Stay tuned. With me on the line today, uh, one of the all-time great uh, industrial designers, Robert Bruner. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, you know, my pleasure with an intro like that, you know, great. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it really is an honor. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you're here because uh, you guys just launched a new uh, uh, Beats product, the new uh, Beats Studio 2.0. Yep. And... Um, it's it's really kind of an interesting uh, brand successor, maybe kind of one of the most uh, influential and maybe more uh, improbable brand successors of the past five to ten years. Um, and this this whole product line you created with uh, Jimmy uh, Iovine and uh, is that how you say his last name? It's it's uh, he'll be very uh, important to you. It's Iovine. Iovine. Uh, yeah, Doctor Iovine. Don't say Iovine. He'll okay. correct you. Okay, Iovine. good. And uh, Doctor Dre and uh, Luke Wood. Uh, so yep. t- talk about. I, I want to kind of get into the Genesis story of this. So talk about meeting uh, Jimmy and Doctor Dre for the first time about this project. Uh, what what was that meeting yep. like, and and how did they pitch you on it? Well, yeah, it was interesting. It was one of those. Um, you know, friend of a friend thing. You know, I met this guy who was a friend, friends with someone I, I'd worked with who uh, was really interested in, in working with um, the music community on, on bringing products to market. Somehow he was connected to Hollywood. So somehow he got connected with um, Interscope, which is um, Jimmy's uh, record company. And uh, anyway, he set up his meeting and we went down to talk about it. And it just really... You know, as usual, a lot of things like there's a bunch of people in the room, but then in come, you know, Jimmy and Dre, which, you know, pretty much, you know, where where all the conversation existed. So that was my first, you know, experience with them. And, and really, um, we just talked generally at that point, you know, about what, what we might do and, and their interest and so forth. But, you know, after the meeting ended, I got to spend some time with Dre and, and Jimmy and, and, and understand you know what what they were thinking and um you know it was just an initial thing but it was just the beginning of actually what turned out to be a really great relationship um which i've always found a little weird you know i'm just the you know classic nerdy industrial design guy right and yeah all of a sudden, all of a sudden i'm hanging out with jimmy and dre and diddy and all these people and we all <laughs> seem to get along right it's really right. kind of interesting but um yeah so the, the, the idea right was was that um I mean, they were just interested in the idea of audio products, and and it really was coming from a very authentic place for Dre, and that you know he's um, 
as much or more a producer than an artist anymore. He produces um, many, many, if not most of the top acts in in, in hip hop and and rock. And he's a perfectionist, right? He he will literally he will work on a song for a, for a year. It's, it's kind of crazy, but he will do that. And his passion was that you know he would spend all this time developing music, and it would go out and quote kids would listen to it on crappy white earbuds, right? And he said they're not hearing all this that I put into my music. Um, in fact, it made this statement that we put on the packaging, which was you know, people aren't hearing my music. And you know he just felt like he wanted to do something, right? He wanted to create products that were built around the kind of music that he created. And from from an audio perspective, uh, Jimmy, on the other hand, who's 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 brilliant, you know, and 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 he's you know a little bit challenging at times, but brilliant. And he uh, he saw that really for a for a younger audience, there was no high performance audio brand. Right? If you if you think about it, at that time, it was you know the high uh, the the high performance end of the market was dominated by Bose right which is kind of your dad's headphone and um you know there was Sony which was sort of a you know from a perceptual point of view a dying brand and Sennheiser was kind of esoteric and so there was really nothing there for for the audience that he you know that he knows how to communicate to nothing there for them from from a high performance audio point of view so that's how kind of it all came together it's sort of well let's um let's go out and, and build a really great headphone and see what happens, right? And, and and start to create this this brand called Beats, which was Dre's name. He said, you know, people people come to me for my beat, you know, was a statement that he had made. So that's when we decided to call it Beats. And um, you know, and you're right, it's been insanely phenomenally successful and, and the impact of the brand, especially over the last couple of years into into um um cultural consciousness has been un- unbelievable right and um we were just always amazed on on how how impactful and the success of it is uh, that it that it's achieved yeah i i think that's one of the interesting uh i mean that's the, the what you said about um dre and and jimmy kind of finding kind of the differentiating factor i mean that's the whole disruption of the product the fact that music's designed for that music and it's why the people that uh, maybe detractors of beats kind of don't understand it, right? Because they're these kind of these audiophiles that. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I always I always feel like you know that it beats still doesn't get a lot of respect, and and it and people are sort of expecting it to all of a sudden implode that it's somehow just you know an an artist marketing scam, you know, which is the farthest thing from the truth. The the the, the whole what the whole intention was to go out and build products, you know, around these ideals, right? That that felt were important. And you know, the, the we're we're sometimes slammed because we're very good at marketing, right? Which is funny. You know, people think, well it, it's all marketing, right? Well, yeah, of course we're good at marketing. <laughs> Just you know what Jimmy knows how to do. Um and but that doesn't mean that we're not doing amazing products and that from the, you know, and, and design was part of that from the very beginning, you know, very first conversations was, you know, that Jimmy and Dre got that these had to be special, look special, feel special, be iconic, be wearable art. These are all the things that we discussed and that, that, you know, that we were going to make the cornerstones of this brand, um, you know, the, the audio profile thrown around Dre, um, the design of them and how people, you know, how they performed and how they felt and how people felt about them. And then, you know, that, you know, it, from 
a communication point of view, it would, we, we treat it more like, you know, marketing, um, you know, a music artist as opposed to a traditional CE product, right? And just really, really work on, you know, and again, the ways Jimmy knows how to do of, of getting into the consciousness of, of, of that audience, right? So mm-hmm. those are always the three, the three stool, three points to it. And a lot of people focus on the marketing bit, but really there's an amazing amount of work that goes into every headphone, especially in the studio around the, the technology involved, um, building out the audio profile, testing, evaluating the, on the, on the, product design side we've gone through enormous enormous um, am- amount of work and effort to build you know as close to a perfect product as we can mm-hmm. and, um, you know and then there's been quite a quite a, um, a a team both here in San Francisco and down in, in Santa Monica built around that yeah now and from what I understand and I think I, I saw this at a, a Pecha Kucha you gave at South by Southwest you initially tried to uh, dissuade, uh, dissuade the group from doing hardware. Well, I wouldn't say dissuade, but I, I you know, it, it's it's really been interesting for us at Ammunition as a whole, and I'm sure a lot of design firms that um, the number of relationships we have now that have, people have come from not making hardware, right? It's they're they're doing software or or content, or they own an audience, right, and they want to build things to, you know connect with that audience but no one ever realizes how freaking hard it is right? right and all the pitfalls and so forth involved with actually not only designing and developing but building and then distributing and and maintaining and everything that goes with, with a, you know delivering a physical thing out into the market and supporting it um it you know all of us that do it know it's 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 a tough business and it's full of um pitfalls and minefields and everything else right Right. So, you know, initially I was like, you know, I wasn't saying don't do it. I'm saying you guys better be prepared for what you're getting into because this is not the same as cutting an album, right? Right. <laughs> it's not. It's a completely different gig. And, you know, and actually it took a while, especially for, for, for Jimmy and Dre to understand that, right? We initially, you know, their their thing was, okay, you know, until the day we're going we're gonna to put the track out there, we're going to continue to fiddle around with it in the studio, um, you, you don't do that. You don't do that. You know, no. right? In, in developing a physical thing, right? There's a point where you say, "Okay, this is, we're going." Right? So right. We, we can't do much to it for the next six months, right? So stop. But um, you know, it, it, then I was. It's interesting working with the music industry. Um, I always felt there's this huge sort of blessing and curse thing that goes on. There's an amazing amount of energy and this this sort of um, really very entrepreneurial attitude of let's do that, right? Let's try that. Let's go out and make that happen. Um, and that's great. But then the other side of it is, uh, you know, I changed my mind. I think it wasn't quite working the way I wanted it to. Let's, let's do something else. And you're like, you know, great. But yeah, but you know, that's, that's unbelievably painful. So, uh, but they've learned a lot. And, and so have we, and you know, actually it works pretty well now. Right. I mean, you can prototype music and release the prototype and people could still like it. I mean, you know, if you could release a track yeah. you've been working on, but you can't, you can't do that with industrial design. Um, yeah. Talk about the inspiration behind the aesthetic, which has become fairly iconic. Yeah. Uh, big can headphones have been around forever, yeah. uh, but you guys were able to play with some of those traditional archetypes in a really interesting way. Talk about the work that went into that. Yeah, that, that started with the original studio and, and when, you know, Jimmy and Dre asked me to work on it. I spent some time, like I usually do, just just understanding 
the legacy of things and what's you know what's led to it to be the way it is. And I really felt that most headphones, rightly so, were, were driven from some very functional points of view, right? It's from an ergonomic point of view, of course, comfort and fit, um, adjustability, of course, the you know audio quality and the amount of um, volume required to drive a certain sound profile, you know, within the ear cups, all these things, right? And it was a very important, but I felt like if if we were going to create something that was wholly unique and iconic, use the phrase that was from the beginning, because we, you know, we knew that you know the the product was going to live or die by it, not only its performance but its visibility, right? In terms of how how you know being seen and being seen on people and so forth. So you know, I decided to re-architect the thing mechanically. And really, most most headband structures were very articulated. They're um, driven by adjustment point, headband cushion, um, rotating gimbals, extensions, et cetera, all sort of fit a variety of head sizes. And I wanted to visually streamline that from ear to ear, right? Try and create this single surface that ran from one ear to the other. Um, of course, having an extension for fit, but really just felt extremely simple and, and get all that mechanical noise to, to fall back a few layers. And that was the whole idea with the original headband structure. And then from the from the ear cup point of view, even though they're, they're still cans, we really drove the technology and the amplification of the product so we could, you know, reduce some of that thickness and reduce some of that scale, you know, the sort of Princess Leia look, right? The big, you must. So, right. um, so that that was really sort of drove the first design, and it was it was a very complex mechanical design, and we did some things that people hadn't done before with headphones, and but but it worked, right? It's the the classic B iconic logo at the center point of the ear cup, going into this teardrop shape, and then this um, flush surface running side to side, right? yeah. white headband. What came first, the, the Beats logo or the industrial design? Because they they seem um, so linked together that it seems like they they, they drove each other. They did, yeah, actually, they did. We we did them virtually at the same time, and you know the first sketches. And and you, you guys know, were responsible for the the logo, or is that someone else? Yeah. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, no, we, we were working on it too, and we, we just, you know, we, we, we were actually designing the product and the logo at the same time, and they sort of went hand in hand, and mm -hmm. really this, this sort of central symmetry of the identity, you know, which we felt was just key from a visibility point of view, that drove some of the thinking about what the mark should actually be like and how it should work and so forth. Um, you know, while, while we had, I'll be, I'd be lying if I said I ever thought it would be this successful, we, we did look at it and say, okay, this, this is our swoosh, right? This is our Apple. How are we going to apply it on the product and how is it going to, how are we going to give it space and how are we going to make it, give it presence, you know? And, and that, you know, it was one of those rare times when you do the product and identity, you can make that interplay work, right? So yeah. that, that was part of it. Yeah. When, when you set out to design this, did you already have the idea or was there, you know, some sort of, you know, we need to make sure that this is more streamlined than the, than the current cans are. What, talk about a little bit of the exploration that, uh, that you worked on, but you, those roads that you didn't go down ultimately. Well, I mean, we, you know, the first round, we, you know, probably get 30 or 40 ideas and, and a lot of them are centered around this sort of idea of um, streamlining or, or seamlessness. Mm -hmm. um, some of them were, some of them were more articulated and again, those, just didn't didn't feel right, and the, you know the thing that um, I was striving for was this idea that um, while I, I wanted them, of course, to work extremely well as, as a headphone, I thought, you know, this is 
this is a wearable piece of technology, right? So you, you want something that people want to wear, you know, that isn't just being driven like, because I, I have, to, I want to listen to music. Therefore I have to put this thing on my head. I actually feel good about it on my head, feel good about it on my neck, you know, and that, and that goes, that went hand in hand with, with how it was originally marketed, but really think about it as, as, you know, as, as much as, um, a functional piece of consumer electronics as as a piece of body art or jewelry, and um, you know it, it actually it's been it's been incredibly success, successful in that way. You know, again, it's 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 in combination with with how things are are promoted and communicated to the audience. But you know, people just feel really cool wearing it. You know, <laughs> that was that was part of it, right? And we always knew that. I mean, part of you know one of the foundational beliefs I had from you know, from my, my time at Apple and then Pentagram and starting ammunition was that, you know, really, really great products that people have an emotional relationship with, right? They, there's a connection that, that it, it's beyond the functionality and beyond what it, what it does in their lives. It's actually something that when you do it right, you just want to participate in it. And, and that, that, you know, has turned out to be very, very strong in, in beats, obviously. Yeah. What, one of the major successes, uh, you know, as part of the marketing of the, of the product has been, reaching these influential athletes and musicians. And, you know, it seems like it really kind of reached its apex when, you know, NBA stars like LeBron James started, uh, you know, attaching themselves to it. You know, you just see them pregame walking into the locker room and they've got their beats, yep. you know. Uh, in the process of designing, did, did Dre give you any cultural or aesthetic advice to kind of think about when you're designing? Or do you design differently for uh, an African-American audience than you would for... I don't know, like a, a quote-unquote white audience or, you know, even the world uh, at large? No, we didn't do it that way. I mean, it's um, it, the, the one thing that we did when we thought about how we wanted the product and the brand, at least initially, to feel that it was, you know, sort of, you know, I wouldn't say we built it off, you know, sort of Dre's equity, but it was a thought, right? It, 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 it should feel kind of dark and serious and, and powerful and, you know, a bit moody and, you know, those, and that really showed up in the packaging, but also in the product, right? We just wanted them to feel, you know, I mean, the guy is, our, our founder is a former gangster, right? So, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, you should sort of, you should build on that equity, not, not, not make it white and fluffy, right? So, right. um, yeah, so we, that, that, that was part of it. It wasn't so much thinking about what would appeal to an African American audience because we felt, you know, it was a very broad audience. And, and the, the, you know, the thing as far as um, showing up on athletes and celebrities, um, you know, one of my classic quotes I give from, from Jimmy is um, early on, he said to me, um, Robert, our marketing strategy is a lot of people owe me a lot of favors. And, <laughs> And, and you know it's true, right? And, and yeah. the interesting thing about it initially is all those guys, they weren't they weren't employed by the brand, or they really just um, admired Dre, admired Jimmy, you know, thought they were really cool, wanted to be part of it, you know. So you know, Jimmy was constantly anybody that came in his office, you know, he would give them a pair of studios, photograph them with it, send them on their way. But you know, the really the big one you mentioned, LeBron, which was fantastic, was at the. Um, Right before the Beijing Olympics, um, uh, Maverick Carter, who's um, 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 LeBron's uh, longtime agent and friend, he's a great guy, and, and he apparently called Jimmy and said, "Look, um, we're at we're at LAX. We're, we're you know we're leaving um, for 
for China in, in like an hour, you know, get me 20 pairs of headphones. Right? <laughs> and, um, and they did. And so all throughout that, you know, they, the Olympics, you would see, you know, LeBron and the entire team, you know, warming up with them and press conferences with them and just, you know, the exposure was amazing. And it was, you know, classic ambush marketing. And, and that just continued. Right? We just, as every opportunity we could to get, the product on somebody with visibility that that opportunity was taken and it's it's turned out to be you know enormously successful virtually every you know every video going out of universal at the time you know sometimes some point or another there'd be a, a headphone one of our headphones showing up in and it's just it's creating that that visibility and and that's again something that jimmy you know acutely understands how to do yeah what does ammunition deliver for beats in, in terms of uh, output, I mean, it sounds like you're you're going you know much further beyond industrial design. You're also thinking about the the packaging and the branding as as, yeah. as well. And how how well, important I, is that to you to kind of deliver that as one uh, experience? You know, it, it's very important. I mean, first of all, it you know it's it's really now today much more of a collaboration than it ever has been. You know, the Beats has, has built up an amazing team, so. You know, they have hundreds of people down in Santa Monica and in a strong engineering and development group. So our, our, we work very tightly with them. I mean, our, our role, I mean, I mean, my, my title with Beats is chief designer. So I'm, I'm really responsible for the product experience, extending into packaging, and then overall the sort of brand ideals and, and how they're embodied in the things that the company puts out. So um, we, you know, we, we develop things. We do R&D on on new ideas, you know, we sort of start with the roadmap, work with the um, category managers at Beats, start developing new ideas. Do you work with them to... on that roadmap? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, it's 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 always a balance between, you know, what the portfolio is, what the business opportunity is, what the gaps are, or sometimes, you know, the great thing about it still is, oh, somebody just has a really cool idea. Let's let's go see if this is viable. Um, which is great. A lot of companies, when they get to, you know, Beats is over a billion dollar enterprise. When you get to that point, people start getting conservative, but um, we haven't seemed to have that problem. There just seems to be more ideas than, than we have time for. So, but yeah, we work on that end and we, we carry it through to, um, you know, a mechanical design, you know, working closely with, with Beats people, our own people, factories, carry it out into production and then, you know, onto market and then continue to develop it from a line extension point of view. And we do all the packaging and inbox materials and so forth, and continue to drive that as well. You know, working with Beats, Beats guys on the retail side, and so it's you know it's a partnership. That's what you know we've started a, this model at Ammunition from the very beginning, where we we did a, we do a lot of traditional sort of fee for service type relationships, which are great, but we also have a, a small selection of these business partnerships where we're deeply embedded in. In a company and getting it going and, and creating their, their their products and helping manage the direction of those and so forth and and those are different financial models we work on and it's great because we have this sort of best of both worlds and get to be involved in a whole variety of things but then other things we get very deeply and carry them through into the market and and beyond mm -hmm. so uh you guys have a new beats product out it's the the 2.0 version of the of the original beat studio yeah. Um, you know, and as a design as an industry, we kind of get caught up sometimes in the importance of innovation, which is which is of course important. 
Uh, but, you know, but sometimes we forget the importance of, uh, you know, maintaining the product line and, and, you know, bringing along those, you know, those, those uh, refinements that really kind of make a product start to sing. Talk about the importance of, of that for, for you and for, for Beats as well, because you've, you've done some really uh, nice builds on, on the product, not just from this Beats 2.0, but, you know, it's the, there's a whole portfolio of products now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've gotten very good at, at headphone design. Um, <laughs> you know, we've gone through it a number of times now and, and a lot of learning. And, and, and the, the new studio is, is, is an example of, of all that learning. And it was sort of interesting when we started talking about it, right? Because if you're a designer and you're um, charged with redesigning the company icon, right? It's, it's, you have to be very, think very seriously about, about that. What, what, what's the right thing to do, right? I think as an, as an impetus, most of us tend to veer towards, let's start all over. Let's create something entirely new. Let's, you know, let's, let's, you know, do something that's, that's 180 degrees. Um, well, we did that because virtually everything about it is different in the product from, um, you know, how, how it's made, how it performs, how it sounds, how it adjusts, everything. But we really felt like we wanted to, that that equity that that the original studio created was very important to carry forward, right? Not just throw it out to start over. Really, that it it should feel like you know a 2.0, not you know something completely different. So that that was that was always something, and, and I, that, that took a, a little um, convincing for everyone to to get behind. But then they finally understood is that you know this is again the the iconic representation of the brand in in the, in the product sense. So let's let's make sure we keep the good equity there and, and, and improve on it and keep it moving. So that was, you know, the thing is sort of let's, let's build an entirely new product, but have it feel like it's a studio. Right. Right. Yeah. There's and, a, know, there's a clarity brought to it now that it's uh it's, it's almost a more uh, high fidelity version of, of the original. I yeah. mean, not, not yeah. just audio wise, but visually and, and brand language wise, it's, it's, it's cleaner. Yeah. And it, I mean, from a performance point of view and a comfort point of view and, um, durability point of view, it's a huge upgrade. It's just, you know, on our night and day and, and it's just an amazing headphone, but you know, it does feel like you're, 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 you're becoming part of beats and that's, that's what we want. Um, but you know, it's, um, like I said, that that's always a tough thing to figure out of how do you push forward. And, and, you know, in this, I, I think while I am, you know, I think we're you know, obviously taking a little bit of a page out of Apple's book, right? And you don't, you know, every successive version of something tends to be just better, right? Not, not entirely, you know, ground zero up, but better. Um, but, you know, we have this, this ability to do both, right? I mean, we're doing other products where we're going to completely push outside what we've done before. It's just that, you know, your, your, your brand, your brand steward, so to speak, was something I think you should be very careful with. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this project you've done with uh, Adobe. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the uh, the project Mighty Stylus and Napoleon uh, Ruler. It's a, a concept you've been working on with them. How did this start? And maybe give a little background on the on the project as well. Yeah, we we've been um, in the background working with Adobe almost from the very beginning. We started ammunition working with with Michael Goff, who's the, the VP of experience at, the, at Adobe. And, you know, and it was always, uh, initially it was doing 
playing around with hardware to sort of inform software, right? And and really, you know, developing concepts and ideas that sort of, that that could embody or or drive the functionality of Adobe applications and technology. So we did a lot of things, little studies here and there, and models and so forth. And and then this one was interesting that really came from from Michael in the sense that you know he realized that. Um, they needed to figure out how to begin to transition Adobe creative functionality into the the tablet space, right? And you know the problem with you know it's it's I wouldn't call it a problem, but a characteristic of of the iPad as as one platform is that it's really not a great authoring tool. <laughs> it's a great consumption tool, consumption tool, a great communication tool. But you know if those of you that have tried to actually go out and, and create on it, it has its limitations. Right? So um, the goal was to start to build input devices that would support um, true creative um, activity on on those um, touch-based devices. And and the pen was an obvious place to start. There were pens for the um, iPad, but they had shortcomings right? from, from a, um, a drawing and construction point of view. And Michael is trained as an architect, you know, we're of course designers, so we're all very sort of acutely aware of that. And and so the idea was start to build a series of tools. And the um the the cool thing about the pen is we started thinking about physically what it needed to be, but also, you know, there was this idea that um, you know, Adobe was aggressively moving um all of its um applications and content to the cloud base to the cloud, you know, to be cloud based and the idea came up um, from the Adobe team of having this, you know, what, what's referred to as a cloud-connected pen. Um, and, and what that really means is um, it's a couple – I mean, the, the, the way it works is, is the, the pen is, is wirelessly connected to your device, and your device is connected to the cloud. So, it, you know, the, 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 the pen becomes a sort of control element where you can access things you have stored in the cloud, whether it's clip art, whether it's – Color profiles, whether it's uh, files that you want to um, insert in, you use the pen as as the conduit for that into your application. Um, and so, while it feels like it's coming through the pen, it's really not. Your pen's just sort of working as this key to um, to access those things and, and put them in place. But the other cool thing is then, as you move from application to application and device to device. The pen is consistent, right? So it, it is always this 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 medium which is connecting you to your library of stuff, you know, out there. And and it, as, you know that's the way more of us are working now, where you know the things that we need access to exist so elsewhere, right? And we're drawing it in through you know through whatever tools we're using. So that those were the foundational ideas behind it. Just build a really great drawing appliance. For the for a tablet world, but also you know use this in this connected nature to to you know, give you more creative power. Um, and then you know we, we came up with a really great idea for the body of the pen. I don't know if you've seen it; it's a sort of twisted triangular shape. Yeah, kind of the the drafts to a the triangle is kind of twisted on the other side, or it's you know 180. Yeah. 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 And you know, and then that came from. Do you remember when you were in school? You know, when you were a kid, they had these little triangular rubber things you put on your pencils, right? right that made it, you know, so it made it easy to grip when you were, didn't quite have the dexterity yet. And we thought, well, that's <laughs> that should be, you know, why why stop? You know, why stop when you all of a sudden your fingers get bigger? So, um, 
we had we took that as an idea and then realized that in terms of how it fit into your hand, the triangle didn't quite fall in the right place when it went between your thumb and forefinger. So we just gave it a general twist. And it's one of those really, you know, those rare things when you're developing a form that's in, extremely functional, but actually it turns out to be iconically beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's all drawn aluminum and so forth. So, um, so that, that, that drove that, um, the ruler was a really interesting one. I was actually very skeptical about the ruler that it, you know, it seemed like, well, why, why do you need a ruler on a digital device, right? You, everything can snap to uh, lines to be straight and whatever and pull off parallel lines and so forth. But, you know, Michael had this thing where he felt that, no, it, it's really, you know, I'm an architect, you know, this, the using this tool actually will give me confidence. And it's true when you, you use it in combination with the pen um, in terms of drawing drawing um, straight lines, parallel lines, and then we have a menu system built into the ruler that allows you to pick other shapes. It's this really interesting um, psychological thing where all of a sudden I've got this other drawing implement in my other hand. I'm used to things like that, rulers and triangles, at least those of us that are, you know, older than 35 are. <laughs> and it, 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 you know, it actually makes you a better artist on the device, and, um, and, it, and it works. And so we, we developed that as a idea as well and, and we're continuing along a suite of tools that are going to continue to give you, you know as 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 a creative individual using it with um, um, screen-based tablet-based devices that give you more flexibility and more ability to be to be creative and accurate yeah talk, talk a little bit about what it's like to teach a software company of how to do hardware well, you know, it, it's they're completely different worlds, and that's the thing that it's it's many times difficult for companies to understand. And it's, you know, obviously creating um, and and deploying complicated software is an incredibly difficult thing, and, and takes you know tons of development and testing, and and so. But but it's it's still different than making physical stuff, right? And and. While some of the development processes of, of um, conceptualization, prototyping, and testing are sort of very understood and similar, but once you start getting into, okay, we've figured out what this thing is going to be, now let's decide how to make it in production, right, and start dealing with the, you know, the, the challenges of, of manufacturing infrastructure and development resources and reliability and all these things that are very different. It's... Um, it's it's tough to get people to understand that, and there's as I, as I mentioned earlier, with the same thing with Jimmy and Dre and guys at Interscope, is that there's this classic everyone understands that it's done it before. As as you move through time, you know the pain factor of change goes through the roof, right? So you start to you know you know we're we have to you know to test and decide this now because we aren't gonna it's going to be too difficult to come back later and do that. So you need to get a really great idea of where you are. And you know, and understand what the strengths and weaknesses of something are, and so forth. So, it's it's that. And then the other side, you know, which um, a lot of designers don't get into, we do through our partnerships, is when you start looking at, you know, mass deployment and the logistics of doing that, and and getting product into the channel, and 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 managing inventory, and all these things that are, you know. Something if you're downloading software online, you don't really worry about, right? You know, no one does shrink wrap software anymore, so right. um, the idea of figuring out how to, which can those those things can make or break the success of a product. That's one thing we've learned is that you know, the idea is very important, the design is very important, all those, but also as important is the ability to 
deliver and sell and and forecast and all those things that um, you know keep from keep you know, from crippling yourself because you've done something stupid. Um, all very different ideas, you know. Yeah. So I want to uh, finish up by talking a little bit about uh, ammunition. Mm-hmm. And so this is the this is the fourth design studio you started from scratch, correct? Let's so see. Um, you co-founded Lunar, mm-hmm. and then you 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 started the industrial design group at Apple. You started you started and built the ID group at Apple, yeah. and then and, and then, then built the team. Yeah, and then started the group at a product group at least at Pentagram, which is one of the mm-hmm. great graphic design firms of the world. And mm-hmm. now you're uh, you're you're with Ammunition. So what's different about your approach this time around compared to the other times? Well, you know, when I, I was at Pentagram, I was at Pentagram. It was a fantastic place, right, and an amazing organization, amazing group of people. But as you mentioned, it, the trajectory of the company had a lot to do with um, communication design, and I was sort of this boutique within it doing products. And, and I would collaborate with other people at times, and most of the time I was sort of doing my own thing. But... Um, you know, I, I decided I wanted to do something different, and, and a couple. So, a couple data points as to why. One was that um, through through my experience at Apple and and my experience at Pentagram, and in Pentagram, I, in addition to working on a lot of the consumer electronics clients I had, I got involved with United Airlines and Citibank and Tiffany and these other you know really great brands, and you know began to see this this very consistent thing, which I knew inherently from Apple is that um, when people had a, a great relationship with a product or a service, it kind of, it kind of shrunk the gap between them and the company, right? It, it became, um, again, more than just a transaction. It became something very personal and, and especially around objects that, you know, as, as a, you know, as a species, we have this sort of very, um, you know, interesting um, relationship with our things around us. And, um, you know, so I saw that, that 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 emotional connection was extremely important, especially from making a product successful. And I, you know, at Apple, it was very apparent, right? That obviously, to almost anyone, that that the, the Apple brand and experience is really defined by the the, the act of using and, and living with the products, and that's that's incredibly valuable. So, I really wanted to build an organization, a team that supported those those, those ideals, right? Of, of not just you know, I say it's ideas, not objects. It's not just it's great doing a great object, but really building out an idea that people can relate to and connect to, and and, and as, as a power in their lives. So that that was one thing is just starting out and focusing that way. The the second was, um, you know, from a business point of view, I had this um, epiphany where, you know, I realized that as a designer, I was just I was just happy to get a really great project. You know, someone came in the door and had a re- something really cool to work on. Um, and you know, and they paid me enough that I could pay myself and my people. Life was good, right? You know, and, and and that's that's what drives a lot of us. It's just working on cool stuff. And but then I'd see, well, wait a minute, this company just took intellectual property that I and my team created and went out and sold it and made hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And it's like, wait a minute, I'm I'm kind of selling my intellectual property cheaply here because um, you know the other the other um, thing that I could see clearly. You know, seven years ago was the the rising strategic importance of of industrial design. You know, I mean, it was beginning, and you could just see it where, you know, what what we were doing was was very soon going to be held in the same light as as um, what previously would be held by a, a, a team developing technology, right? 
Um, so all I put together is I look, I want to build an, an organization that, that's really about doing great things that people love and, 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 and covet in their lives and build different business models that allow us to participate in the success of that. You know, the irony, my, my partner, Matt Rollinson says, uh, here, my partner in ammunition, Matt Rollinson, he, um, had this great statement that the irony is that, you know, we would stop participating in the value of something at the moment it started to have its greatest value. <laughs> right. Right. You know, so we would we would stop participating the moment it went to market, which was when its value began to rise. Right. And so, you know, it's like, duh, you know, so we're we've been, you know, building relationships like Beats and, and Williams-Sonoma. And, and we've launched a few companies like Fuego and Octovo. And we're just you know sort of going along doing that and getting better at that. In addition to, you know, working with great companies like Adobe and Barnes and & Noble and so forth as a as a. Um, um, service partner as well. So, and then, so that was the foundation of you know why why we did it and 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 the uh, why I did it and the goal was to just build an amazing team and an amazing studio and a great place that really talented people wanted to be part of. And and we've managed to do that. We have a fantastic group here and and very little turnover and just you know really um, just really just a great great studio. Yeah, you know it seems like we're in this moment now where. You know, obviously, you've kind of realized this throughout your career—the value of, of, of being an entrepreneur and, and and starting companies and partnering with them. But it's, it seems like we're in a moment now where the rest of the industrial design community is is realizing this as well. You know, I mean, through you know, just through a site like Kickstarter. But I, you know, I think even before that, I think we've started to realize that you know maybe we should become founders in these companies. You know, I think you you said an interesting thing of that you know we stop our partnership when the value you know the the monetary value starts coming into the company but that's a that's when a lot of key design value is still added back in that point after we're done with you know our project is you know making sure that um vision is preserved all the way through um how how do you uh, approach entrepreneurship or being uh becoming involved invested in in startups yeah well, that, that's a really good question because I think you, you know you you see a lot of designers fail. You see a lot succeed, but you see you probably see more that go off of the idea I'm going to start my own company and make stuff that they either sometimes it fails, sometimes it just kind of chugs along. Once in a while, it really goes somewhere. Right? Um, but you know, the thing that I realized, and this was purely selfish, and it's just there, there's some stuff I don't want to do, right? I mean, there's some stuff I don't know enough to do. I mean, I really don't understand, um, obviously, software development. I don't know enough to be dangerous. But, I mean, really, when it gets into the business, um, sourcing, logistics, um, sales channels, you know, I mean, again, know enough to be dangerous, but really not something I should be in charge of. Right. So, you know how to have the conversation. Well, yeah, and, and but to be honest, I don't want to. I don't really want right. to spend spend my days, you know, trying to forecast inventory and 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 schmoozing um, retailers and stuff like that. You know, um, I I, I want to you know design and create and, and develop ideas and develop businesses. So so the the goal was to find relationships, find these partnerships, right, where we we get other people that really know what they're doing in areas and and combined with the areas that we really know what we're doing. And, and make stuff and deliver it, and that that's been the thing we're doing. Is, is it? It's not. 
um, so much that we feel like we want to own the entire enterprise. It's we want to participate and then bring what we know how to do really well and find other people that know how to do the other stuff really well and let's go make something, right? And um, and that that's, you know, it, it's it's you have to be careful in creating that, but you find the right people and the people you can work with and we've had some successes and failures in that area, but, you know, it, but once you do it, 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 it really works. And, and the really one of the amazing things that I found in doing that is that as a designer and you get into that situation, um, you know, you, what you do and, and, and what you bring to it, the, the value of that with your partners goes exponentially up, right? It's no longer you're a hired hand that's going to do a creative activity and go away. You're, you're embedded, right? You're, you're, you've got skin in the game. You're part of it. And the um, the um, if you if you're good at it, the the respect and the rewards and the control and all the things that you've always wanted come right, and that that's that's been incredibly rewarding for us, and especially with you know something like Beats that's you know getting a huge worldwide success, you know, and I'm there at the at the table with you know with with the key individuals that are that are running the enterprise driving the business right and that's that's incredibly rewarding and that you know that comes from having this entrepreneurial mindset but but again i think the important thing is is for me and and advice i give to a lot of people is really stay close to the shit you know how to do and and find other people that are really good in the areas you don't know and and you can learn right but but don't dive into something and that's the thing that's been interesting for me in watching um a lot of the the quote Kickstarter successes that that have um, raised a lot of money and um, you know one of the things we like to say is that you know it, to do to, we get in these partnerships with people that have extraordinary assets right like to say they have this you know whether it's a supply chain or an audience or an ability to do something but an idea and money are not extraordinary assets yeah which you think about right ideas are important and but there are a lot of really great ideas money you can achieve a lot of different ways um to to fund something and there of course both of those are vital but they aren't the key they aren't necessarily the thing that's going to make it successful um knowing how to develop and make something and sell it and deliver it and manage it and all that stuff is what you know com- combined with a great idea and funding are what make things successful so uh, we're always looking for you know those extraordinary assets that are outside of just an idea and money yeah Two of your partners, Brett Wickens and Matt Rowlandson, come from the world of uh, graphic design and UI. Mm-hmm. Talk about the importance of bringing those worlds together with industrial design, because you know it seems like maybe ten years ago the the emphasis would have been on bringing maybe you know engineers and industrial designers together. I feel like there's a switch happening now, where bringing some of these other disciplines together with industrial design is starting to really speak to the uh, experiential part of design. Yeah. Well, that's, that's you know, getting back to the, the foundation when I started the company was that, you know, it's about creating, you know, amazing things, but there's a lot of that goes into it beyond the object itself, right, and experiencing that and experiencing it, how, how it works and how you interact with and how it's presented and communicated to you and the process of buying it and learning about it and discovering it and all those things. That's that's a multidisciplinary thing. That's not, you know, one person can do that, but not necessarily can be the best at it. 
and so well, you know, well, we you know here at Ammunition we've got a product design, mechanical engineering, user experience, inter- interaction design, design strategy, service design. Those are all components, but we don't treat it as sort of a um, you know a menu of services. It's just kind of what we do, right? And so when you go at it developing something, these are all the things that are very important to to, to bring to it to to end up doing something great, right? And and so I think that's that's what's just naturally transpired, and and this sort of realization about building great things is not just about the guy who's giving form; he's an important part of it. But it's it's really sort of building this very broad idea and having. And the thing that I think I'll, the studios there there's studios that get that right, but the thing that I think is rare is when you understand when you do that there needs to be a very strong editorial thread across all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just oh let's let's throw it over to the user experience guy and let's let's hand it off to the graphic designer or visual designer. It's really concocting and developing this very strong editorial viewpoint on this thing and what it is and how it should behave and how it should be seen and felt, and then running that through all all those disciplines to just you know contribute to to make something really great. And uh, and that takes a fair amount of direction and management to do it. It's not you know it's it's not process is very important but process alone isn't going to get you there it's it's also vision and viewpoint and just you know tenacity and those are the things that, that matter so that that yeah it, it's definitely i think the way designers need to behave and and it's and i see it as collaboration with purpose you know not just collaborating because we all have something good to offer that's important but it's really we all have our behind a purpose about doing something and we're going to and that ultimately there always has to be somebody there a lot of times it's me who's the editor who's saying that's right that's not this is important that's not important right and that's how you end up doing really great stuff Mm -hmm. a lot of firms have uh, moved away from what i call shipping industrial design to theoretical yeah. Industrial design. And it's usually like in support of uh, research projects. And, and it definitely seems that there's a lot of the money that you see uh, for some contracts now, the, the chunk of it goes into research and, you know, there's like a small portion left over for ID. Yeah. Um, you guys have, you've gone the other direction with the ammunition mm-hmm. and you, uh, you know, I'm sure research is important to you to a point, but you definitely work on products that ship. Um, can you talk about the importance of of shipping products to your team? Yeah, it it is. It's it's, it's overt, and and it's because and, and it it comes. I mean, there 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 is some strategy there, but it really also is just very personal. You know, I just I and Matt and Brett, we just like making stuff. You know, we don't. It, it's really um, it's not as rewarding to you know talk about what something is and illustrate it and, you know, and, and, and create, um, thought leadership around it. Those are all very important things, but, you know, ultimately we get our satisfaction at actually making something and seeing it happen. And, you know, really, I, I mean, I, I think I, I can see how it's, it's tempting to go down the path of saying, look, if, if we stay at this level of strategy, right, 
um, one, it, you know, I think it, it's, it's always an easier sell, right? It's, you know, to sort of keep things up at a higher level. And, and two, it, you know, it's, it's also, um, there's a, I've worked with someone once that, that, um, I was on the strategic side and I, I dove into the actual making something and I got my hand slapped and said, no, you know, we always stay two levels above implementation because if we get any lower, um, people are going to start to measure our success. Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but but you know, from a business point of view, it's like, oh, okay, I get that, but that's not really what I want to do, and and so you know, we've always taken this sort of idea that it's like, and and you said that research and and broader thinking are very important to us. I mean, it, to me, it's always about understanding context and finding opportunities. But at some point, it's like, okay, let's do this, and we're we kind of employ these you know sort of thinking. We're we're less like the Pentagon and more like a you know. Um, Navy SEAL team, right? It's just sort of we. There is a, there's a strategy and there's an objective, but let's go do it, right? And let's see what happens and 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 learn from that and then do it again better, right? That's I think that that's the culture of the studio here. And if you can do that, you actually you become much more valuable than than the the, the organization that, that's that's hovering in in strategy because you you can demonstrate actually how you created value again, right? That, back to that point of value. Yeah. All right. Well, last question, and um, kind of curious to get your take on this. Uh, I feel like designers have kind of made aesthetics a dirty word, and you know we get embarrassed to talk about it. You know, you kind of see people start blushing when then they talk about the way something looks. Uh, you know, because we want to correct people. Like if we're in a meeting, we want to correct people and tell them we do more than make things pretty, which is absolutely true. You know, we bring a lot of yep. great thought to the table. But if you look at the most successful, most you know celebrated industrial design firms and the, and and groups and the, and the work they're doing today, uh, they all produce you know very beautiful work. And so I'm wondering, you know, do you think we have devalued ourselves by uh, you know talking down the one you know one of the elements that we bring to the table that's unique? Yeah, yeah, I do, and it, it's really interesting for me. You know, I've been. I'll tell you how long I've been doing this because I'll date myself, but it's been a while. And from early on in my career, it was the same thing, right? Everyone, I, it was, you know, if you called a designer a stylist, that was a dirty word, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that was when I when I first started, right? It was, you know, sort of, you know, that was that was a lot of the feeling about industrial design was, well, they're just stylists, right? They just come in and make it pretty, and they make it hard to build, and you know, it's really, you know, I remember my father was a mechanical engineer, was really upset. <laughs> when I, I switched from engineering to design, you know, and he said to me, you know, the industrial designers are the guys who specify the paint and it usually peels off. Was it? He said that to me, right? <laughs> and that, that, but that, you know, but now today it's kind of something that's embedded in our own psyche as designers that somehow if we're just seen as making things beautiful, um, that's bad. Now, of course, design is much more, right? Design is, is a much broader term, but it's really, the thing I always feel like is there are so few people in the world that really know how to make something beautiful, right? And then there are even fewer people that really know how to make something beautiful in, in, in mass production, right? It's an incredible talent and it's an incredible, it takes an incredible amount of tenacity and leadership to make it happen. It's not something to hide from. In fact, it's very desirable. I mean, 
over my course of my career, I've, I've seen it time and time again where you, you know, go into a situation where you wouldn't expect people would care about aesthetics, um, you know, backroom um, server equipment, right? Well, you talk to the guy and he's like, oh, no, man, I, I, want this, I want the coolest equipment out there. This has to be the most powerful, the most, you know, innovative. Well, he's, he's figuring all that stuff out by the way something looks, right? Mm-hmm. So you you can't it it the aesthetics and and how things feel are direct again conduit into people's emotions and it and it's and it's a communication medium right you're communicating to someone values about something and of course someone has gets better values out of something that's pretty than it's ugly <laughs> you know so so yeah stop stop being afraid of that it's an important skill and not very many people know how to do it so go with it yeah well, I, I want to thank you again for taking the time to uh, talk with me today. This has been great. I'm sure I could have another uh, hour-long conversation, just talk about all your history, uh, you know, with Lunar and Apple and, and Pentagram and, and some of the other stuff you're doing in ammunition. But uh, that'll be it for today. But I, again, I want to thank you. It's been it's been great. No, it's my my pleasure. Happy to do it. And yeah, we'll, we'll save that for another episode. Sure, sounds good. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> all, right. all right, thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Well, that's our show. Uh, my thanks to Robert Bruner for being our guest and to Sarah Monday at Ammunition for setting up the interview. You can see Ammunition's work at ammunitiongroup.com. You can follow me and the After School podcast on Twitter at AfterSchool. And you can also follow Core 77 on Twitter at Core 77. We now have our iTunes links working, so if you want to listen to new episodes as soon as they're released, stop what you're doing right now and go to the iTunes store on your computer or your podcast app on your mobile device. Search for Core 77 or After School and subscribe. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all the stuff you heard us talking about with Robert. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon.